from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello, welcome to the Bulletin podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. Six times a year, the Center for European Reform publishes the CER Bulletin. And Bulletin articles are often pieces of research with a longer shelf life that you can come back to again and again to read up on the issues that they discuss. In the Bulletin podcast, I'm going to ask each of the three authors of this month's Bulletin three questions, and they'll get around five minutes to each brief you on their argument. In order to do that, I've gathered all three of them in our very professional <laughs> CER podcast studio, which frankly is quite crammed at the moment, but we'll make do. First, we have John Springford, who will propose a solution for the trade relationship between the UK and the EU post-Brexit. Then we have Agata Gostynce Jakubowska, who will explain the conflict between Poland and the EU and whether the new Polish prime minister will pursue a change in policy. And then there's Ian Bond, who's going to speak about one year of President Trump in the White House and how to interpret the new US foreign policy course. Right, first, John, your piece in this year's bulletin is called Holding Out Hope for a Halfway Brexit House. I love a good alliteration. It's great. The premise for your piece really is that now that the divorce is agreed and the negotiations are moving forward on trade and the transition, the UK's and the EU's positions are becoming clearer, that the UK will push for Britain to maintain a regulatory alignment with the EU in some sectors while being free to diverge in others, and that the EU, led by France and Germany, has said that given Theresa May's red lines, as they've been stated, there can be no halfway house between a free trade agreement and full participation in the single market. There is one model that keeps coming up at least in Brexit trade nerd circles, which I want to first ask you to explain. What is managed divergence? Well, managed divergence is the idea that it would be possible for certain sectors of the British economy to remain in the single market, for certain sectors such as fisheries, for them to be completely outside the single market and the UK can just do what it wants in those sectors. And then for a third group of sectors, it's possible for the UK to say, we're going to diverge from it and have our own regulation. But EU, you have the right to restrict access in that sector And so the process of managed divergence is kind of a way of the UK deciding which areas it wants to have sovereignty in. That sounds like a very attractive model for the UK, which begs the question, how do the EU27 feel about this? How likely is it that they're going to accept this UK vision? The answer is not very likely, and I think for three reasons. The first one is, how do you choose the sectors which are in the managed divergence bucket? The EU inevitably will say, look, this is cherry picking, so they're not going to like that much. The second question is how many rules the UK would have to adhere to. So let's say the UK wants to keep car standards. The EU will say, well, you're going to have to have the Industrial Emissions Directive, you're going to have to have state aid, you're going to have to have social and employment law too, because they're broad cross-cutting rules which are designed to stop all sorts of different industries from being able to get competitive advantages by, say, polluting more or having very low wages or poor working conditions and so forth. And the third reason I think the EU will find this very difficult is because... How do you solve disputes? So a dispute settlement system of some kind would have to determine whether a competitive advantage had been gained by the UK saying we're going to scrap this rule. But it's very, very difficult to objectively identify the economic effects of regulations. It's not the same as tariffs or subsidy, where it's much more simple. And this is actually very difficult. And so if the UK said, well, we don't like this one particular insurance rule in the insurance sector, but we're happy with the rest of them, we just want to change this one, how would the dispute settlement body then say well, that's bad enough that we think the EU can restrict market access in the entire insurance sector. 
So I think it would just be politically unmanageable. And I think the EU would have a good case that this would be very difficult. So the great thing about your piece is that you actually propose a solution. You propose a model, the kind of halfway house that works for both sides. Just give us the sort of two minute layout of that model, John. Our proposal for a halfway house would be politically manageable in the future and unlike managed divergence, I think. But it also would bend so many of Theresa May's red lines, almost a breaking point, that I'm not sure that the UK would be able to go for it. There are also some problems for the EU as well. Our proposal is stay in the customs union and the single market for the broad goods sector. Services access for the UK would be pretty much the same as that of a third country. They can try and get services deals with countries around the world if they want. Within that system, the EU would insist that you would need to have a mechanism for downloading new rules in the goods sector. You'd need to have a court for dispute settlement, which takes into account European Court of Justice rulings, something which is pushing Theresa May's red lines. You'd have to have rules about state aid, environment, social employment law to stop various forms of dumping, as they call it. You'd have to have a financial contribution, perhaps 50% of the current UK contribution. And the really big question, and this is the problem for the EU, the Swiss have a kind of similar deal, although the process of enforcement and downloading of new rules is much laxer. But would the EU insist on free movement as the price of such a deal? Or could the UK successfully argue, and I think with some justification, that the UK's comparative advantage in services is so strong, services exports are now nearly half the total, that this is kind of sufficient punishment for its desire to end free movement. Maybe there's a, a middle way where you have a very highly preferential migration regime of the UK for the EU, which falls short of free movement. The really big benefit of this is it solves the Irish border issue. If you're in the customs union and single market for goods, then lorries can cross the Irish border without any kind of hindrance. It limits economic damage and it offers some sovereignty to the UK. But as I say, I'm not sure whether it's negotiable with the hardliners in the Conservative Party. Okay, moving swiftly on, Agata, you've written a piece for this bulletin about the new Polish prime minister and what his appointment means for the relationship between Poland and the European Union. So I want to get to the new prime minister, Mr. Morawiecki, in a moment. But first, could you just spend a minute or so recapping what the current conflict between the EU and the Polish government is about? It's not going to be easy, but in a nutshell, the European Commission thinks that the Polish government is backtracking on the rule of law and in particular particular, it thinks that the government has weakened the independence of the Polish judiciary. Indeed, the ruling Law and Justice Party pushed through changes to the organization of the Constitutional Court, which in turn made it easier also to introduce some constitutionally uh, controversial judicial reforms, which in fact enhance the political influence of the party on the organization of the Polish courts. And this is what the Commission is very much concerned about. So in the last two years, the Commission has tried to bring the Polish government to heel, but on December the 20th, it effectively decided to propose triggering Article 7 of the treaty. Right, just really quickly, Article 7 of the <laughs> treaty, you're going to have to explain that. Well, what we know about Article 7 is that it is very often referred to as a nuclear option because it aims to address any attempts of individual member states to backtrack on the EU values, but it hasn't been used yet. Perfect. That was very quick and to the point. Now then, Mr. Morawiecki has replaced Beata Szydlow in sort of a what seemed like a middle-of-the-night kind of action. Many see him as a moderate and hope for better relations. Is that true? What do you think? Will the appointment of this new prime minister mean a new beginning for relations between Poland and the EU? 
As I write in my bulletin piece, I think that the new Polish Prime Minister will strike a more constructive tone in his discussions with the EU and its member states. Morawiecki himself, he is a former banker, he understands that it is important to nurture relations with individual member states. As I'm being told in Brussels, he also feels comfortable in an international crowd and actually officials like talking to him. So he will inject an emollient style in Polish-European policy. But in terms of substance, I'm not so certain. So what I argue is that he will probably not back down on the judicial reforms. This is because Jarosław Kaczyński, who is chairman of the ruling party and effectively pulls all the strings in, in the government, thinks that the courts are actually packed with judges who worked under the former communist regime and he thinks that they should be ousted. And it seems to me that Morawiecki broadly agrees with him. So so instead of bending towards the commission's pressure, he will try to make a positive case for the reforms which both Morawiecki and Kaczyński think are necessary to improve the Polish judiciary. What choices does the EU have then? What can the EU do at this point to alleviate this conflict? Well, it seems to me that there is no good solution, <laughs> which is not very helpful, what I'm saying. But the ball is now in effectively in member states' court, and they can decide that there is a clear risk of a serious breach of EU values in, in Poland. And then, if Warsaw didn't change its course, the European Council could unanimously decide that Poland has breached EU values. But it seems to me that member states will not rush to reaching this conclusion, and mainly because actually many of them have been reluctant to openly condemn uh, what the Polish government has been doing. And this is for various reasons. And one of them being that some EU capitals simply do not like when the EU is interfering in countries' domestic bad behavior. Others might need Poland's backing in other policy areas. And then there are also member states which themselves have problems with the rule of law. And this is the case of Bulgaria, which is currently holding the presidency in the council and which ultimately decide whether there will be a voting on Article 7.1. So my feeling is that the member states will try to postpone any voting while trying to reach a kind of a compromise, even if this is a fudge with the Polish government. But as I said, there is no good solution because if member states decide to activate Article 7, they will probably antagonize the Polish public, which is pro-European, but thinks that they should not really interfere into something which they see as domestic matters. And if member states do not really react, do not take any actions, well, they will be seen as weak in the eyes of international actors, and that could ultimately undermine EU's power of example. Okay, thank you, Agatha. Ian. You've written a piece for this bulletin called From 14 Points to 280 Characters, Wilsonian versus Trumpian Foreign Policy. Because at the beginning of 2018, we're not just marking a year since President Trump took office, but also another anniversary, the anniversary of President Woodrow Wilson's 14-point speech to Congress that he gave in January 1918. Ian, what was that speech about and what was its impact? The speech was really about two things. Uh, one was about the war aims of the US in coming into the First World War. So there's a good deal there about the withdrawal of German forces from Belgium and from the territory of France that they were occupying at that time and what should be done about Russia and about the Turkish Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and so on. 
and about the establishment or re-establishment of an independent Polish state. But the parts of the 14 points that have lived on, in a way, in international relations are the more general principles that he laid out, including the freedom of navigation, the uh, freedom, or at any rate, the liberalization of trade. Above all, the idea that you had a League of Nations which would be responsible for guaranteeing the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states large and small. So putting states on a, a footing of equality in an, in an international organization. You can argue with the way that those principles were implemented after the First World War, but in many respects they also shaped the thinking of those who had to shape the world after the Second World War in the kinds of institutions that they set up. You have chosen to compare Woodrow Wilson's vision of the world with that of President Donald Trump. Why do these two visions lend themselves to this comparison? How does Donald Trump fare in this comparison? Donald Trump doesn't fare well in this comparison. That may not be a surprise to hear. But the thing about the Wilsonian vision is that it's based around rules which are binding on everybody and around institutions which guarantee the observance of those rules. And as I say, that's something which in a sense was strengthened after the Second World War with the creation of institutions like the United Nations, with the UN Security Council, and like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which ultimately evolved into the World Trade Organization. So that you had a structure of international bodies which were responsible for, on the one hand, peace and international stability, and on the other hand, for free trade and international prosperity. And that's a construct of how the world should be organized that has held together pretty well for the last 70 years. It's not perfect. There have certainly been conflicts. There have been times when, particularly in the UN Security Council, East and West have been deadlocked uh, through much of the Cold War. But the system has worked pretty well as a way of managing international tensions of various kinds. What Trump is doing is to go back to a much older model of interstate relationships where the big guys make the rules. And that's quite destabilizing for many parts of the world. And it's not obvious that in circumstances where you have countries like China, which are actually rising in the world, that it's in America's interest either to um, move towards a system where the big powers get to decide and the small powers get to have things decided for them. So what does that mean then for Europe? What does it mean for the EU, which in its principles is a rather Wilsonian organization? How can the EU react? Well, you've correctly said that the EU is part of this system of international organizations and rules. And it has a very strong interest in continuing to defend that system. One of the things that uh, I believe the EU should be doing is to look for like-minded partners, of whom there are a number of significant countries, whether it's Canada or Japan, Australia or others, who also have a stake in the continuation of current structures and systems. Even China Although it has an interest in having a bigger voice itself in international organizations, has shown, for example, in the speech that President Xi Jinping gave at Davos last year, that it's quite attached 
to the idea of an international trading order, an international economic order. And so I think it's important for the EU and for others who feel that they have more interest in a structured system of relations than in a sort of Hobbesian all-against-all approach to international relations, that they should actually try to defend the international system against the approach that Trump is taking, in which, you know, everybody fights and you see who ends up as top dog. That was our first bulletin podcast on Poland, Brexit and President Trump. Thank you so much, John, Ian and Agatha. Thanks for listening to the CEA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CEA underscore EU.